oops, sorry, you just say that again. May 19, 2021, in Hawaii, over the internet, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 25, Text 41. Kanama Vira Vikyatam. But I am Priya Darshanam. Navranita Priyam Praptam. Madrishi Twadrisham Patim. Ka. Who? Nama. Indeed. Vera. My dear hero. Vikyatam. Famous. Vananyam. Magnanimous. Priya Darshanam. Beautiful. 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 Na. Na. Not. Not. Virnita. Virnita. Would accept. Would accept. Priyam. Priyam. Easily. 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 Praptam. Gotten. Madrishi. Madrishi. Like me. Like me. Twadrisham. Twadrisham. Like you. Like you. Husband. Oh, I'm sorry. Patim. Muted. Patim. Sorry. That's all right. We got it. Okay, ready? Patim is husband. We lost the last one. Um, Can you uh, give me ability to share my screen also? Shri Prabhupada's translation. Oh, my dear hero. Who in this world will not accept a husband like you? You are so famous, so magnanimous, so beautiful, and so easily gotten. Srila Prabhupada's purport. Every husband, and I'm assuming we're having a small crowd today because people don't want to hear this purport. Purport. Every husband is certainly a great hero to his wife. In other words, if a woman loves a man, that man appears very beautiful and magnanimous. Unless one becomes beautiful in the eyes of another, one cannot dedicate his whole life to another. The husband is considered very magnanimous because he gives as many children to the wife as she likes. Every woman is fond of children. Therefore, any husband who can please his wife by sex and give her children is considered very magnanimous. Not only does the husband become magnanimous by begetting children, but by giving his wife ornaments, nice food, and dresses, he keeps her completely under submission. Such a satisfied wife will never give up the company of her husband. Manu Samhita recommends that to keep a wife satisfied, a husband should give her some ornaments because women are generally fond of home, ornaments, dresses, children, etc. In this way, the woman is the center of all material enjoyment. In this regard, the word vigyatam is very significant. A man is always famous for his aggression towards a beautiful woman, and such aggression is sometimes considered rape. Although rape is not legally allowed, it is a fact that a woman likes a man who is very expert at So do you have it on your I have it. I'm nominated. 
Kanama vira vikyatam vadanyam priyadarshanam na vrinita priyam praptam madrishi twadrisham patim. O my dear hero, who in this world will not accept a husband like you? You are so famous, so magnanimous, so beautiful, and so easily gotten. Okay, select items to share. Krishna, it went away. I have to, I have to do this again. Just if this particular purport has been discussed at length by hundreds, if not thousands, of devotees in our movement. It is, I would hazard a guess, the most controversial, the most difficult, um, the most painful purport in all the Srila Prophet's books. Now, we tend to focus on the last sentence as the real problem, but I'd say even the first paragraph is somewhat problematic for modern women. This concept that if a man uh, gives his wife children, jewelry, food, and dresses, that she'll be completely submissive <laughs> is also something that probably a lot of modern women would find uh, very insulting. But the, that's definitely a problem. But the biggest problem, of course, is the, the last paragraph that uh, Prabhupada says, such aggression is sometimes called considered rape. Although rape is not legally allowed, it is a fact that a woman likes a man who is very expert at rape. Now, uh, my own personal conviction is that if the editors of Srila Prabhupada's books had said something to Srila Prabhupada about that sentence, Prabhupada would have removed it. And my conviction is based on the fact that Srila Prabhupada had, had a sentence, I believe in the first canto, saying that Negroes are thought of as ugly and yet they are attracted to each other, which is a similar point he's making in, in today's purport. And Satsugamaraj, who was one of the editors, said Srila Prabhupada, you know, in most of the world people do not consider Negroes to be ugly. And Prabhupada said, then take it out. So I think with this sentence, he would have done the same thing. If anyone had said to him, Srila Prabhupada, having this sentence in your purport is going to cause people to reject your teachings completely, he would have said, take it out. It's not important. Uh, and we can ask why they didn't say that. You know, why wasn't that said? So my own guess as to why it wasn't said is when this uh, canto was came out in 1974-1975, that Prabhupada's statement was not as controversial as it is today. And some of my evidence for that is there's a very well-known clip from a movie created in 1947. I've not seen the movie. And the clip is called Baby, It's Cold Outside. And in that clip, Baby, It's Cold Outside, it's a man trying to convince a woman to stay with him, basically, for sex, and she keeps saying no. And it's, it's actually kind of rapey. I mean, at one point the woman even says, what's in, what's in that drink? <laughs> and uh, at the same time, that sort of behavior was considered very normal. It was considered just sort of normal flirtatiousness and normal male-female interactions. 
it was not just in the last year or so people really started objecting to that old song from that old movie so at the time that Shiva Prabhupada made this statement the concept that there could be women who really liked men being aggressive as Prabhupada says this aggression may be considered rape that that women might like a man who was so aggressive that it would border on rape was something that was quite accepted in, in society at that time. Right, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this statement using hermeneutical tools. And for this I'm referencing a document which was uh, approved by the GBC. This is the foundation document of Vaishnav Hermeneutics and Iskand done by the Shastric Advisory Council. And this document was done specifically for helping us to have a boundary for what was acceptable explanations of the words of Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. And to do that, we have these, that to understand Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra, especially difficult statements, understand any statement of Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra, but especially a difficult statement such as the one we're looking at today, that first of all, we need to cultivate Vaishnava qualities like humility in a service mood, fidelity to text and tradition, a discerning search for truth, honest and authentic conversation, openness to change and transformation, and benevolence and generosity. Then we have these principles. These principles form a boundary for what kind of explanation is acceptable and what kind is not acceptable. So for ISKCON hermeneutics, and this is very specific to ISKCON, it would not apply even to other uh, Gaudiya groups coming from Srila Bhakti Siddhanta. It certainly would not apply to other Gaudiya groups in general or to other Vaishnava groups. The overarching principle is that we both understand Shila, the tradition through Srila Prabhupada and we understand at the same time Srila Prabhupada as representing the tradition. So when we want to understand what our tradition says about a specific verse, we go through Srila Prabhupada. At the same time, if we want to understand Srila Prabhupada, we look at the tradition because Prabhupada is representing the tradition. And it's kind of this circle where we see the tradition through Prabhupada and we see Prabhupada through the tradition. All right, so these are other principles that Krishna is the ultimate goal of everything in the Shastra, that Shabda is the highest pramana, that the scripture provides the theory and method for its own understanding, that we identify categories of texts to illuminate their meaning, that there are hierarchies, that scriptures are consistent and coherent, that there are universal truths that are applicable in all times, in all places, and in all people, that authentic understanding and exposition of Shastra are conditioned with Siddhanta, that there are summary statements of Gaudiya Vaishnava Siddhanta in Shastric texts, that Shastra both transcends and addresses context within which it is revealed. Consideration of context, including historical circumstance, is essential to gaining Shastric insight. That texts are properly understood and explained in terms of the intended reader or audience. That knowledge is not simply a collect collection of correct objective information, but is inwardly mediated through the knower. That insight emerges through ab dialogue and through mediation, resolution, or reconciliation of paradox, apparent contradiction, and multiple views. That Shastra mercifully reciprocates with those who study it and compassionately reach out to others that the meaning of Shastra is directly revealed to one with full faith in Guru, Shastra, and Krishna, that by purifying the senses, Bhakti removes the conditioning, the clouds, and distorts perception, 
that realization requires virtue, personal transformation, and the assimilation of knowledge by experience, that the highest truth aims at the welfare of all. Of course, that's right out of Bhagavatam 111. I'm very important to today's purport. The texts are understood according to the mood of intent of the author's speaker. That's also very important. We understand Srila Prabhupada's statements by his application of them in relation to his mood and mission, also very important to today's purport. Truth is conveyed with logic, reason, and exemplary character through the system of parampara. Parampara is perpetuated through discernment of meaning more than mere repetition of words. Education in Shastra delivered by the self-realized teacher helps preserve disciplic succession. So we're not going to go through all the 40 hermeneutical tools today, but we're going to look at uh, a hermeneutical path. So in trying to understand this purport, uh, we first are going to look at ourselves. We're going to be self-reflected. And what's the nature of my own sadhana? Do I, do I have good sadhana in terms of quantity and quality? This is something we can ask ourselves. Am I aiming towards a mood of service and surrender to Srila Prabhupada and my spiritual master? Because I think very easily with reading this purport, we can just go, that's wrong. Do I have sufficient concrete experience of the topic in my personal life? Um, I'd say in this particular example, not really. I have not, thank you, Krishna, been raped. Uh, I know of people who've been raped, but it's not something that I have concrete experience of in this life. I am, I am not part of the Me Too movement. I have not uh, been sexually abused or raped or molested in this life. Hardly even subtly. Do I have sufficient personal realization of the topic from my experience? Some. I mean, some. But again, I've, I've not been a victim of, of rape or sexual abuse. So I have some personal realization. Am I working towards embracing the principle of unity and diversity? Yes. Do I have sufficient shraddha to accept that the motive behind this statement is pure and benevolent? Yes, I do. Do I have the humility to adequately acknowledge that I may not understand correctly or that my understanding is limited? Yes. Do I strive to be free of offense, especially towards other Vaishnavas? I try. Am I doing my best to be a moral person with integrity? I certainly try. Do I live or strive to live primarily in the mode of goodness? Again, I do try. Is my present state of mind conducive to understanding the statement? And that's a very important question to ask. That... But what is my consciousness at this particular moment? What are my emotions like at this particular moment? How far am I ready for personal transformation? I think that's a very good question to ask when looking at this kind of appropriate. Am I willing to apply what I'm studying? Well, that's an interesting question for this purport. What personal and cultural biases am I aware of? And, and that's particularly significant, as I was saying. Um, the, the clip, you can all see it on YouTube if you want from this 1949 movie shows that what Prabhupada was saying was much more culturally, uh, was considered culturally true previously. So, you know, that there are some cultural and, of course, personal biases that I have. Am I aware of my motives? Is my goal to find truth or to prove that I'm right? So that's a very interesting and important question here. I think I need to close the door as somebody is weed-whacking out there. Do I already have an opinion on the topic, and if so, am I prepared to change it? Well, I definitely already have an opinion on the topic. 
Maybe I need to close my window as well. Am I prepared to change my opinion? Perhaps. Do I have the spiritual adhikar to be studying this statement? I would say yes. Have I read all the major works of Srila Prabhupada? Yes. How well do I know the language I'm reading? It's my native language. Am I comfortable with uncertainty and paradox if needed? Yes. Am I willing to pray and wait for understanding to emerge? Yes. All right, now we're going to do, after looking at ourselves and making sure we're in the right consciousness, we are going to look at this particular statement in reference to Siddhanta. Now, what we mean by Siddhanta is we mean things that are always true for all people at all times in all circumstances. As Krishna very nicely explains in the Chatur Shloki of the Bhagavatam, and let's see if I... He talks about that truth is applicable in all times and all places and under all circumstances. Uh, can you see the ten tenets of Gaudiya Siddhanta? Is everyone able to see that? Sorry, you have to give me time to unmute, but yes, we see. Okay. So well, let's look at the Das Mulatatva Bhakti Vinod. So here Bhakti Vinod is giving us the uh, what is universally true. That these ten things, Gaudiya Vaishnavas accept, are universally true. The statements of Amnaya are the chief proof. That's the statements of the Bhagavatam. That Krishna is the supreme absolute truth. He's endowed with all energies. He's the ocean of rasa. Jivas are all separated parts of the Lord. In a bound state, the jivas are under the influence of matter due to their tatasta nature. In the liberated state, the jivas are free from the influence of matter due to their tatasta nature. The jivas and the material world are both different from and identical to the Lord. Pure devotion is the practice of the jivas. Pure love of Krishna is the goal. So looking at today's difficult, controversial statements, uh, which are specifically, again, that a man is always famous for his aggression towards a beautiful woman, and such aggression is sometimes considered, which are important statements, rape. Although rape is not legally allowed, it is a fact that a woman likes a man who is very expert at rape, and particularly the statement, a woman likes a man who is very expert at rape. Does, is that statement the same as any of these statements of Siddhanta? I think the answer is obvious, no. So this statement Srila Prabhupada's making is not a restatement of an eternal, universal truth that is applicable to all people at all times and all places. It, it just is not. Right? He says a man is always famous for his aggression towards a beautiful woman. Um, there are many men who are famous for other things. There are many men who are not aggressive and who are famous. So it doesn't apply to all people. Such aggression is sometimes considered rape. Um, and, and it is a fact that a woman likes a man who is very expert at rape. That may apply to some women in some circumstances, but it certainly isn't a universal truth. And it certainly is not one of these universal truths. So these statements are not statements of Gaudiya. These statements that Prabhupada are making in this purports are not statements of Gaudiya Siddhanta. They're not restatements of Gaudiya Siddhanta. Are they statements of Gaudiya Siddhanta that are applied in a particular context? No, they're not that either. 
So they're neither, those statements are neither just statements of Gaudiya Siddhanta, nor are they statements of Gaudiya Siddhanta that have been applied in a particular context. All right, then the other two options are that these statements might be supportive of Siddhanta, or they might be opposed to Siddhanta. And you would say, well, why would there be any statements opposed to Siddhanta? But there are, in fact, like Krishna's arguments to Nanda about the Govardhan Puja is, are opposed. Let me see if I can open my door again. Get some air. So there are statements in Shastra and by the Lord and by the Acharyas that taken in and of themselves oppose Siddhanta. So that's not the case with this. So then we have to say that it is supportive of Siddhanta. Srila Prabhupada is saying something, and these are our choices. Is it a restatement of Siddhanta? Is it an application of Siddhanta? Does it support Siddhanta or is it opposed to Siddhanta? So we would have to say it supports Siddhanta. That Srila Prabhupada is making a statement here to try to bring people to Siddhanta, to try to bring people uh, to a universal truth. Okay, let's go on to using the hermeneutical tools. I hope you can see this. So this is not the only way to use hermeneutics, but it's, it's a very useful path. So focus on the meaning of the specific verse, purport, or statement, saying what is being said here, what does it mean, how is it relevant to me in terms of achieving final and intermediate goals of devotional service? So it seems like what it's saying here is that women often like men who are aggressive, even to the point if they're aggressive can sometimes be considered rape. And what does that mean? It, it means that there are women who like aggressive men sometimes, at least some women, uh, even if sometimes that aggression could be considered rapey. How is it relevant to me in terms of achieving final and intermediate goals of devotional service? Uh, I think it's rele- relevant to me in that it's Srila Prabhupada saying that uh, sometimes, but like Bhakti Santa says, this is a world of cheaters and cheated, that sometimes people like to be exploited. Sometimes people take pleasure in in feeling like that they're an object. <laughs> Focus on the content of the verse per order statement, saying how does this statement fit into the rest of the chapter or book? To whom was it spoken and in response to what question or problem? When and where was the statement made? What other statements does the Shastra Srila Prabhupada make on this topic? Well, that's a very interesting question. How does this fit into the rest of the chapter or book? This particular chapter is, uh, is talking about an analogy where the woman is being compared to material intelligence, the man is being compared to the condition jiva. To whom was it spoken? Well, Srila Prabhupada's purpose were written for people in general, specifically for his disciples, but for people in general. Response to what question or problem? I would say it would be in response to the questions or problems about how we become entangled, because this particular section is very much about how the conditioned jiva becomes entangled in the body. When and where was it made? Well, that's important. It was made, again, probably most likely dictated this in 1973-1974. What other statements does the Shastra or Srila Prabhupada make on this topic? And we'll get to those momentarily. 
Uh, but keep that in mind that we are going to look at other statements Srila Prabhupada makes on this topic. How does this particular Shastra instruct me to understand itself and its statements? Again, we're looking here at an allegory. We're looking here at a metaphor, and this uh, Puranjana is a metaphor, and therefore all the explanations also have to be understood as having a certain amount of, um, of symbolic or metaphorical context. What is the place of this chapter book conversation, the hierarchy of Shastra and the works of Prabhupada and the Acharyas? Well, of course, it's in the Bhagavatam, which is our primary uh, source of authority. But again, it's in this section of allegory that's being used to convince Prachini Barishat, a materialistic person, to give up his materialism and take up the path of bhakti. So it's meant to show how nasty materialism is. That's, that's really the, the purpose of this particular section. Is this statement on a beginning, intermediate, or advanced level? I would say definitely beginning. How this particular Shastra is structured. Okay, so we kind of looked at that. That's not so much relevant. The genre and mood, we talked about how it's an allegory. Is it primarily philosophical or narrative? This is primarily philosophical and is very metaphorical. It's, it's allegorical. The four traditional questions. Who is it for and what are the qualifications of the intended audience? So this was for people in general. Prabhupada was writing this, these purports to be distributed widely to people in general, uh, considering that their adhikar was, was rather low. What is it about? So it's about, again, how the soul becomes entangled by their material intelligence, how material intelligence captures the soul. What's it for? What's its goal? The goal of this is to become detached and disgusted from this materialistic intelligence and to surrender to Krishna, because that's what Virginia Barishat does. How does it go about teaching what it teaches? It goes about teaching what it's teaching through a very interesting way of this allegory is supposedly, at this point in the allegory, people who are, you know, on the verge of great enjoyment and attraction and things of that nature. Are there ambiguities in the language? Now, this is a huge point for this particular statement. Changes in the use of language over time and the historical context were applicable. This is a huge consideration. And I cannot stress strongly enough that concepts of acceptable male-female male, behavior have changed radically in the, in, since, you know, like the 30s and 40s. Or to speak of the time when Srila Prabhupada was brought up. You know, if... if I mean, it's just shocking. Anybody who asks me about this purport, I always say, you know, go to YouTube and watch uh, Baby, It's Cold Outside, which was from a 1949 movie. And it was, it was very popular, and it was very accepted, and nobody objected. But boy, is it rapey. It's really rapey. And you're like, whoa, you know, nobody could do something like this today. Of course, even today, um, I'm not a, I do not listen to rap music, but I remember one time waiting for a car to be repaired and hearing rap music that was also very rapey. It was, the rap music was about, about committing sexual violence to women. It was interesting that there are people who listen to this music, and I would assume that there are also women who listen to this music. But in any case, the concept of male, proper male-female dealings and what is consent and what is enjoyable, and what is socially acceptable, what is morally acceptable, have changed radically. Just, just really radically. 
What about the use of language? So the word rape is also interesting because although Srila Prabhupada does say here that rape is not legally allowed, he's also saying that aggression is sometimes considered rape. So Srila Prabhupada is giving really two definitions of the word rape here. One is a man who's being particularly aggressive with a woman, but she's enjoying it and she's consenting to it. And somebody could say, well, that's rapey, which is like that, that video you can see. The woman is clearly enjoying it. And it, it's clearly a flirtation thing for her. But it, uh, the behavior of the man could be considered rape. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. So you have that situation, and then you have something that is definitely legally rape, <laughs> which nobody, by definition, would consent to. So we have different uses of the word, and if you look up the historical meaning of rape, you get things like, you know, picking up the woman and carrying her away on a white, white horse into the sunset. Go through the statement repeatedly. Oh, God, there he goes making noise again. Sorry, we keep getting into it. It's just very stuffy here with the windows closed. Uh, so repeatedly deepening your understanding each time. I've certainly spent quite a bit of time with senior devotees going through this purport. Consult with the understanding of other acharyas. Uh, I couldn't find anything in the commentary of the other acharyas that even touched on this, that said anything about it. Many of the other acharyas haven't even commented on this verse. So this is something where Srila Prabhupada is not, is not bringing something from the acharyas. Contemporary Vaishnavas, there's a lot of contemporary Vaishnavas who've looked deeply at this purport. And Srila Prabhupada's application of the topic under discussion, uh, Srila Prabhupada never tolerated any kind of abuse, sexual, physical, emotional, of anybody, ever. So, if we're looking at Srila Prabhupada's application, we have to say that uh, Prabhupada never, under any circumstances, ever approved of anything that one could call rape uh, by any means. Okay, so I'm going to stop sharing that screen. And we're going to now look at, because part of what we were looking at was other statements that Srila Prabhupada has made um, on, on rape, about rape. And now here, this is very interesting. And I've lost the ability to share my screen. Can you give it back to me, please, Amanda? Yes, I will. It just takes a minute. So let's look at some other places where Prabhupada talks about rape. So here, Shula Prabhupada is saying, rape means without consent, otherwise there is no rape. And Shula Prabhupada seemed to know quite a lot about legal cases. He, he often refers to them. And here he talks about a lawyer who got the woman to agree that she felt some pleasure in the rape, and he used this, the fact that she felt some pleasure to say that it was with consent. But Prabhupada disagreed with this. He said, so the lawyer by hook and crook made the woman agree, yes, I felt some pleasure, now there is consent, so he was released. So, but then, so Prabhupada's criticizing the lawyer for using this. But then Prabhupada says, it is not that the women do not like rape, they like sometimes, they willingly, that is a psychology, outwardly they show some displeasure, but inwardly they do not, this is a psychology. So Srila Prabhupada's talking about a very particular 
psychology of women. That And there was a... I don't think I've listened to this song, but I remember in researching this, there was some popular song that was called When I Say No, I Mean Yes. And it seems to be part of the male-female dynamic that many times women will say no when they mean yes. So their Prabhupada says they like sometimes. All right? All right. Uh, here's interesting. The Prophet is talking about that, how the inequality of men and women, that women are generally the rape victims. Okay, now this is another interesting conversation where Prabhupada's saying, he's um, talking about, sorry for you, no fall bodies. <laughs> then Prabhupada's saying, if I desire, why shall I serve Krishna? Why not become Krishna? I fall down. And this devotee says, why doesn't Krishna protect us from some desire? Prabhupada said, he's protecting. He says, you rascal, don't desire. Surrender unto me, but you are rascal. You do not do this. And the devotee says, why doesn't he save me from thinking like that? Prabhupada says, that means you lose your independence. The devotee says, and no love. Prabhupada says, that is force. And then has said, if you catch one boy or girl, you love me, you love me, you love me. Is it love? And there's laughter. He says, you love me, otherwise I will kill you. Laughter. Is that love? So Krishna does not want to become a lover like that on the point of revolver. You love me, otherwise I shall kill you. That is not love, that is threatening. Love is reciprocal, voluntary, good exchange of feeling. Then there is love, not by force. That is rape. Why one is called lover, another is called rape. So Prabhupada there very clearly is saying that Krishna is not a rapist that rape is something by definition that is forced upon you. Something by definition that you don't want. So how can you want something that you don't want? So if we take this definition of rape, that rape is something forced upon you that you don't want, then there's no possibility that any woman would want something she doesn't want. However, if we take a definition of rape as sometimes aggression that a woman says she doesn't want but actually wants, uh, that's actually very common. And again, we find that uh, acknowledged as very common. Nowadays, people are saying, well, it's not like that. But I think for you know, millennia, people have understood that it is like that. And we might say, why is Srila Prabhupada making this point? I believe that all of us can agree that we would prefer that Srila Prabhupada didn't make this point with this language. And again, I, I, my own belief is had the editors brought up to him that they felt there was a problem with this language, Srila Prabhupada would have changed it based on how he responded to other requests like that about uh, similar things. But my understanding is the point that Srila Prabhupada's making is about women being protected, which is a common point that he makes. And if you look up the look at the first part of the purport, you would see that. Srila Prabhupada is talking about how a husband should take care of his wife. And, the, and again, even that, even the way Prabhupada talks about a husband taking care of his wife would especially not be uh, very much liked by modern feminists. But uh, she, if we look at the, at the verse where you know the man is asking the woman to marry him and she's saying, yes, you're a great hero. 
why wouldn't I want to marry you? Of course I want to marry you. And Prabhupada's saying, saying if you want to protect women, if you want to make sure they're happy, if you want to make sure they're satisfied, if you want to make sure that home life is pleasant, then the man should have children, he should give the wife good sex, which I think is also, he should please his wife by sex. I mean, I've heard devotees say the opposite. <laughs> Uh, that he should please his wife by sex, he should give her children. I know of devotee men who refuse to give their wife children. He should give her nice clothes, nice jewelry, uh, good food. He should he should take care of her nicely. So even though we you know some modern feminists might object to Prabhupada's statement about keeping her completely under submission, the con- the the feeling is that women should be taken care of that women should be taken care of. And one of the reasons that women should be taken care of is this problem of women meaning yes when they say no. Because of this difficulty of women meaning yes when they say no, of this kind of game that some women play with men, actual rape can happen. You know, it's, it's difficult for men to understand what a woman wants if she says yes when she means yes and she says no when she means yes. How is he going to understand? And so therefore, if you have women that are married, that are protected, and they're married to men who actually care about them and actually want to please them, Prabhupada says he should please his wife by sex. If the husband is going to make sure that his sexual behavior with his wife is pleasing to her, and that's going to vary from one person to another. I mean, there are many women who are like, I don't want aggressive sex. No, thank you. <laughs> you know, I don't want anything to do with it. And other women are going to say, yeah, I want aggressive sex. You know, that's, that's going to be an individual thing. And the man is going to I need to please his wife by sex. And this way, you're not going to have the kind of problems that have happened in modern society, where people are not married, where, you know, there's definitely a fact that some of the, of the harmful and aggressive behavior of men towards women is because men are often confused by the behavior of women. They don't understand what the woman really wants and what the woman really consents to. And at all the modern propaganda of, well, she should say definitely yes. I mean, I don't know. I wonder if those people have any actual experience <laughs> of relationships in life. It, it's just, you know, can I, what do you, it's not like you're always just going to have a conversation. Um, okay, can I stroke your hair now? Yes, that's okay. <laughs> can I kiss your eyelids? Yes, that's okay. Can I put my arm around you? Yes, that's okay. I mean, that's not the way that men and women interact. So, that's what I, my understanding is that Srila Prabhupada is saying this in the context of that the man should actually be a hero. A man should be a hero towards a woman. He should be a real gentleman. He should take care of her. She should be protected. Now, the the great sorrow is that this statement of Srila Prabhupada gets easily and understandably misunderstood as saying exactly the opposite. As saying, go ahead and rape women and they'll like it. You know, that's, that's not what Srila Prabhupada's intentions are. And we know that that's not Srila Prabhupada's intentions because first of all, such a thing would not be supportive of Siddhanta. And second of all, that was not the way that Srila Prabhupada behaved. Now, we might ask then, how is this general purport supporting Siddhanta? How does it support Siddhanta to say that a man should be a real hero to his wife and make sure that she's happy, make sure that she's satisfied, that she's satisfied in terms of material goods like clothes and jewelry and and food, (laughs) 
that she's satisfied in terms of being able to be a mother if that's what she wants, that she's satisfied sexually in the way that she wants. Uh, why, why, what is the purpose of this? Because Srila Prabhupada's purpose and the Bhagavatam's purpose is not in telling us just how to be materialistic enjoyers. Srila Prabhupada isn't interested in just writing some book about you know, male-female relationships and, and how to have a happy marriage in this world. and that, That's not his, his, um, his mood. His mood is how to set up things in this world so that we can most likely attain to pure love of God. As Krishna says in the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita, to live happily in this world and to attain liberation. So Srila Prabhupada knows that if you have stable and happy families, that it's much easier for people to take up bhakti. You know, I've asked thousands of, of people and thousands, many, many dozens of classes. Suppose that tomorrow morning all of the couples in the world were loving and kind and respectful and considerate with each other. What kind of a difference would that make? Well, that was the only thing that changed. Suppose there was no other change in the world at all except that every couple was loving and kind and respectful and caring with each other. What kind of differences would that make? And people would go, wow, that would be huge. It would have such a ripple effect in the world. And of course it's possible to practice bhakti, you know, if you're five times divorced or, or you're in a miserable marriage or something like that. It, you know, it's not that bhakti is independent of material situation. But we very much would like to promote, Srila Prabhupada would very much like to promote, the scriptures themselves very much promote, that if we have a sane, stable, natural life in this world, then taking up bhakti is easier. It's just like, I'm giving this class over the internet, if I have a good computer, it's easier than if I don't have a good computer. If I have good lighting, it's easier. If I have a good internet connection, it's easier. I mean, you know... I, I've heard classes over the internet with a bad internet connection and bad lighting. and it, It's harder. You really have to strain and, and struggle to hear. So that's why Prabhupada's concerned about this. He's concerned about this out of mercy. He's concerned about this, that, that women are not nicely taken care of, that they're not protected, that the, the mood of at least some women sometimes to, to want an aggressive man ends up inviting people who actually harm them. And that women are not taken care of in marriage. I mean, there's many other places where Prabhupada talks about how the woman should take care of the man as well, or how parents should take care of children, or how children should treat their elders, or how we should take care of the earth, and so forth and so on. So, again, I'm sure, I feel confident, that had devotees said to Prabhupada, Prabhupada, the way, the language you're using here is going to cause a lot of trouble, you know, 30, 40 years from now. And Prabhupada would have said, well, well, then change it. <laughs> Uh, and that's not the situation that we're, that we're in. So it's best that we assume that Srila Prabhupada's mood is merciful. We look at Srila Prabhupada's applications. We look at our own cultural biases. We look at historical context. And we look at what is the purpose? Why is this purport here? Why is this verse here? Why is this section of the Bhagavatam here? What is the idea? You know, and ultimately we can say this purpose, this section of the Bhagavatam, it's not just, well, how can I have a stable, happy situation in this world from which to practice bhakti? But it is also to condemn our idea of trying to enjoy in this world. 
That's Narada's purpose in telling this allegory to Prachini Barishant. This is nasty. Even if you try to have a nice material situation as a foundation for bhakti, this world is nasty. People are exploitive, they're mean, they're aggressive, they may even like aggression <laughs> and invite aggression <laughs> and enjoy an aggressive world. And you know, it's one living entity is food for another. It's not a nice place. And that ultimately, that our idea of understanding this behavior within the city of Nine Gates is to not identify, to not think, well, I'm a woman, well, I'm a man, I'm a human, <laughs> I'm part of this world, but to say, actually, I really don't have anything to do with this. What I have to do with are the leelas of Krishna. Now, of course, in the leelas of Krishna, there's things that parallel this. Like Rupa Goswami quotes from how one time Krishna pushed Radharani down on the road and started forcibly kissing her and she was saying, no, no, no. So there's some parallel to this phenomena in spiritual dealings. There, there's, there's some reality of which this is a perverted reflection and we are meant to become absorbed in that reality. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements... We have a very small group today. Just a second. We have a question here in the chat box. Isn't there a spiritual difference between Srila Prabhupada's social commentary of what was happening at the current time and his purports about strictly spiritual topics? Is there a spiritual difference? Um, my answer to that would be no. That everything that Srila Prabhupada, that's by Kandita that everything that Srila Prabhupada has written and everything that Srila Prabhupada has said is equally, has equal motive and desire for spiritual benefit. And that everything that Srila Prabhupada says is infused with Premabhati. Everything. If Srila Prabhupada is making some social commentary about women in terms of the terminology and understanding of, you know, the 1920s, or Srila Prabhupada's talking about Krishna playing his flute. In both cases, we're looking at that Prabhupada's words are infused with love. Prabhupada's emotive and words are infused with the idea of bringing everyone to Krishna. Even if he's talking about, you know, managing the ISKCON bank accounts or something like that. But there is a difference in how we understand and apply statements. So, a statement that is a restatement of Siddhanta or an application of Siddhanta is to be understood and applied very differently than a statement that is meant to support Siddhanta, as what we're reading today, or statements which apparently oppose Siddhanta, such as Krishna's arguments to Nanda against having the Indra Yajna. I'm sorry, I had to meet some people. No problem. Anyone else have anything they want to discuss on this? Uh, thank you. Yes. <coughs> Hi, Krishna Vidya. Uh, actually, somebody had actually come in before you. Who was that? Okay. So I have to Okay, so you're correct. The editors. Okay, I have to do something. Right, 
The editor's messed up. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's over. Meaning, uh, the, the, the leader should meet and, uh, and deal with it. It's the very best it's awkwardly expressed without context. So you've given so many evidences and, you know, there's so many reasons to understand that, you know, Prabhupada would probably be in favor of removing this. I mean, at least it deserves a footnote, but it should, I think it, there's grounds for removing it. And, and uh, you know, you, you, you cited that attitudes have changed radically just in the last few years. You know, you, you just say something and you're a target. Yes. So if somebody is uncomfortable with something you said, you know, you're canceled now. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. They jump, jump you. Yes. I mean, they, they, it's like... Well, I mean, the, you're saying it should be, but it has been. I mean, this particular statement has been discussed at length among the GBC, among the BBT editors. Unfortunately, there hasn't a consensus hasn't been reached about what to do with it. And it's, it's problematic because if you say that it should be removed, then there's a lot of other things that maybe you'd want to remove too. It's... You know, where, where do you draw the line and who draws the line? I was asked by the BBT years ago to suggest a footnote for this, which I wrote and I submitted to the BBT. But that's also being hotly debated. Should there be footnotes or endnotes in Srila Prabhupada's books? And, you know, who decides what to footnote and who decides what the footnotes are going to say? So it, it's not that this particular statement hasn't been deeply scrutinized, debated, discussed, what are we going to do about it? But again, it's not so simple because you're not going to just say, well, we'll just pick this one statement. Although this statement is, in my opinion, the most difficult, contentious, controversial, difficult uh, in all of Srila Prabhupada's books. There it's are, inflammatory. It's very inflammatory. and there are, But there are a lot of other statements that a lot of other people could consider inflammatory. Even like the one earlier in the same purport, that this is how you're going to make your wife submissive, is, you know, give her a diamond bracelet and she'll be submissive. So even that would be considered actually very insulting by, by feminists in, in 2021. So it's... Yeah, but... Most important... Anyway, I agree with you, but I'm also very sensitive to the fact that it's it's not such an easy thing to do. Now, having said that, the BBT has done extensive posthumous editing of Srila Prabhupada's books. And, exactly. And they claim, which is not accurate, they claim that this editing has, bring to, has been to bring the books closer to Srila Prabhupada's original words, although the vast majority of the posthumous editing has had nothing whatsoever to do with bringing the books closer to Srila Prabhupada's original dictations. Nothing. There's not a relationship. Right. Uh, some of it. I don't know the percentage, but some of the editing has been to try to... They went to a... To go to an earlier... To try to restore an earlier draft. Even that is problematic, because why would Srila Prabhupada have engaged editors in the first place if he wanted to use his unedited drafts? You know... Right. It, it's, You're correct. You know, that's... That's, from an editorial point of view, uh, uh, an argument of madness that 
that the that the author who's no longer here to discuss things would prefer to go to an unedited first draft rather than to use the edited version with the editors that he employed. So, right. you know, that, that makes no sense. Not to me as an author, and you're an author, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. But in any case, their contention that they're getting closer to Prabhupada it would only apply technically, uh, and if we're talking about objectively, to a very small fraction of the posthumous edits. So, right. uh, it, certainly, taking out that sentence could be as justified as most of the other edits they've done. I mean, the, their justification for other edits right. could be applied. I mean, some of the edits that have been done to first canto purports, uh, there's a description, I think it's in 116.11 or 116.12, there's a description there of the universe. And those purports were extensively edited to bring them into harmony with the fifth canto. Although Srila Prabhupada's first canto Bhagavatams were finished books, and Srila Prabhupada had had requested that only very light editing for grammar, spelling, diacritics, etc. be done on the first canto, still there was extensive editing done for the specific purpose of not having a purport that people would see as being inaccurate. You know, Hari Kesh was given a, a blank check to edit Fifth Canto. Do you know that? I did not know. By Prabhupada. But then we yeah, have this first was, this he, first Canto purport that is an example I know of that was edited to make it in line with the Fifth Canto. And I have tried repeatedly and through many avenues to try to find out when that first Canto editing was done. Was it done when Prabhupada was here? Was it done after he left? Was it done with Prabhupada's approval? Who did it? Nobody even knows who did it. Uh, Jadwaita Swami said it wasn't him. Dravida said it wasn't him. So, you know, with, with all of the problematic things we have going on with editing, I don't understand why the BBT editors would not take out this particular sentence. Uh, exactly. You know, it's, you know, if you want to leave that sentence, then why are you doing all the other stuff that you're doing? But it's... But, but. Bhakti Tirta Swami visited here. I took the opportunity to ask him why all the changes, why, you know, uh, Jayadwaita Swami was doing that. And he responded by saying that Jayadwaita Swami had this mood of protecting Prabhupada. That was his response. And so if that's what his mood was, if that's what he really, his mood was, this would be protecting him. I, I completely agree. I completely agree with you. Um, personally, I feel editing should only be posthumous editing should only be done with the most clear uh, actual errors. But you know, if they are going to have this this posthumous editing of other things, leaving this is is inconsistent. And of course, a lot of the posthumous editing is inconsistent. So, my own personal opinion is that at the very, very, very least, this purport should have a footnote. On the same page, you know that's yeah. that's my opinion. I have communicated that opinion because I was asked to the BBT. I suggested because I was asked a very specific footnote, but it's still it, a discussion. Again, I see that it's a discussion because once you do this, then you open the door. But they've already opened that door. They've already gone through that door. 
So it's... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the horse is already out of the board. You know, just start... Just start... It's like, you know, if you're going to do all these other things, then do this too. And if you don't want to do this, then why are you doing all the other things? So, you know, that's... That's my take on it. You know, if you're, are you arguing about this? Stop doing all these other things you're doing. Go back, go back to the books as they were when Prabhupada was here to approve them and only make changes in spelling and citation errors and things like that. And don't change anything else or something, or something that Prabhupada specifically directed should be changed like cattle raising to cow protection. And otherwise, leave the books alone. And if you're going to be playing with the books... And why in the world do you not do something like this? <laughs> you know, it's like, choose. <laughs> you know, what does Prabhupada say? If, you, if you're going to dance, uh, don't wear so a veil. Uh, you know? uh, this, if you can imagine, uh, you know, the lately that they, they have this woke culture. Can you imagine if somebody discovered this or this was pointed out to the wrong it person? Be. It will be. It will be. And in, in fact, there's been recent discussions in the GBC about what to do about Srila Prabhupada's statements that, you know, we're looking at possibly having Prabhupada's books banned in some countries. Wow. So this is, in fact, we went through a big problem in Russia within the last five years where... Uh, Prabhupada's books were banned, and then we had to get them unbanned. So this is, you know, if Dr. Zeus' books can be canceled because they show a person, an Oriental person, eating with chopsticks, which doesn't make sense to me because Oriental people do eat with chopsticks. I, I just, I don't see that as as any kind of racist anything. I just see that Oriental people do eat with chopsticks. In fact, I was just taking prasadam the other day. And there were some non-devotee guests, some a devotee's family, and the wife was Oriental, and she was eating with chopsticks. We were eating with spoons, and she was eating with chopsticks. So, you know, I don't know why they have to cancel Dr. Zeus's book for that, but this is the, 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 the culture that we're in. And, yeah, I think one or the other. Like Robert said, if you're going to dance, don't wear a veil. You know, if you don't want to edit, don't edit. And if you want to edit, edit this. But, anyway, I have... I have communicated banned. my opinion. <laughs> banned books sell more copies. That's yeah. one interesting thing. Yeah, yes, you could also say that. Banned books um, sell more copies. And I just, I have to put in my two cents as far as bringing um, certain edits with religious scriptures have a slightly different, um, uh, you have to take slightly different considerations than, than normal authors' books because we do want to catch every drop of nectar that Prabhupada said. So when you have a book like the 72 Macmillan that's taken out many shlokas that Prabhupada quoted, and even though the edits you know, were done by an original editor, a lot of words that Prabhupada said, even if sometimes they sound a little clumsy, the disciples like to hear them. And so when you have a first draft copy that's as, as close to what Prabhupada dictated as possible, a lot of people appreciate having. Well, you could do words. that. You know, you could, you could, but even actually, you can't do that because all we have, uh, we don't have Srila Prabhupada's dictation tapes. So we only have Srila Prabhupada's dictation tapes from most of Krishna book, 
and I think the first six chapters of the Bhagavad Gita. Yes, but as far as when people are transcribing a dictation tape, you can get a pretty good idea of what of what Prabhupada said, and in some places sometimes. you can. And it, sometimes, uh, sometimes, 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 and uh, sometimes but, not. You know, you had people transcribing who were very uh, new to Krishna consciousness, yeah. and for for approximately the middle six chapters, all you have is transcriptions. For the last six chapters of Bhagavad Gita, you don't even have transcriptions of tapes. For the last six chapters of Bhagavad Gita, the closest we have to something being called an original is already edited transcriptions. So, there really is not a possibility. And the edits were far, far less. But you, you just, we, we don't technically speak. And, and the speaking, edits reflect that. But anyway, we do not technically speaking. From a technical factual point of view we do not have the ability to return to an unedited manuscript we don't have it Srila Prabhupada had a handwritten manuscript of Bhagavad Gita that was stolen the only place where we could really return to unedited would be in most of Krishna book that's it I guess, I guess, I guess for those who are, who are really interested in the topic on bbtedit.com all of the changes are, are very clearly demonstrated. Oh my goodness, my dear Prabhu. Only the tiniest fraction of changes are on that site. Only the smallest, smallest, smallest fraction of editorial changes are on that site. As far as Bhagavad Gita. As far as Bhagavad Gita. As far as everything. Including Bhagavad Gita. Not all of the changes are there. That is not a statement of fact. I, I was involved with this very deeply for well over a year, working with the BBT. I went to the BBT conference on this. Uh, it's only a tiny fraction that they explain. And if you look at their explanations, you will see, and Jaidur Jaswami agrees with this, the majority, the overwhelming majority of edits have nothing to do with trying to get back to Srila Prabhupada's original words. What they do have to do with is trying to get back to what the editors believe was Srila Prabhupada's intentions. So they are saying that they know posthumously Srila Prabhupada's intentions more than the editors did at the time. Now that might be true, but that's what they're saying. Or the changes are done because they think this is a better translation of the Sanskrit, or they think this is a clear explanation of the English, and doesn't even have to do with Srila Prabhupada's intentions at all, but has to do with, as it was said, to try to protect Prabhupada, to make Srila Prabhupada look better according to their understanding of what would make Srila Prabhupada look better. So that's the reality. The vast majority of edits, even the Bhagavad are not on that site. And they're not explained anywhere. Anyway, I guess I, I'm, I guess I'm not. I'm not speaking to change your mind, obviously, but just for the others present. I'm the one who puts in screenshots of the transcripts of the manuscripts and on the bbtedits.site.com. And actually, I see a huge amount of them are directly going closer to the transcript, and I think it brings in more nectar that from what Prabhupada said. Well, when we looked at just when we looked at just. At just the 10th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, which I have from the BBT, 
and I don't believe that that's up on the site unless it was put up within the last year. And we did a, a statistical analysis of it, and I believe, and I could be getting this wrong, that not more than 20% of the edits had anything to do with a reversion to a manuscript. Are you including commas? Yeah, a comma can change the whole meaning of a sentence. It's time to, it's time to, eat, it's time to eat children, or it's time to eat children. So, yeah. No, no, obviously, but, but those sort of egregious comma errors aren't the type that are being put in. It's the ones that are grammatically correct. Grammatically correct according to understanding the intention of the author. I, I, I think that if we were to sit down and actually look at all the comma... Well, I've actually, I have actually done that. And I've done it in a meeting of BBT leaders, including Dravida. Um, we spent, I mean, I spent literally a year on this at the request of the BBT. And so I feel very confident in what I'm saying. And I've discussed this extensively with Dravida Prabhu, which I do tomorrow, with Brahma Mahertha Prabhu. Um, so I, I really feel very confident in, in what I'm saying right now. You feel confident that the corrections made change the philosophical meaning in the calmer regard? And, as far and as changes, as far as changes to philosophical meaning, those those are in the minority. It's just like changes that are trying to revert to what Shiva Prabhupada originally said are in the minority, uh, partially because we don't know what Shiva Prabhupada originally said in most cases, and partially because that's just not the majority of the changes that are being made. Uh, the majority of the changes that are being made are well, we think this is a better Sanskrit translation or we think this is a better way to put it in English, we think this is a clearer English explanation, and it just makes more sense to us. The, I don't know the percentage of philosophically changed edits. It's definitely small, and it is smaller than the ones that are supposedly going back to what Prabhupada originally said or trying to go back to what Prabhupada originally said. Uh, I haven't done an exhaustive analysis. I don't think anyone has of going through all of the posthumous edits, edits in Gita and NOD and CC and Bhagavatam, etc., to find all the places of philosophical change. However, I have found, as anyone who's gone through has found, several striking, knock-you-over, you know, punch-you-in-the-mouth examples of philosophical changes. And in some of those cases, it's because the editor felt that they understood better philosophically what was said. In at least one example that I know, the change made in the Chaitanya Charitamrita to a philosophical point, the original point as stated in the purport is also stated elsewhere by Srila Prabhupada with similar terminology. And therefore, the justification for making the philosophical change is very shaky. Now, I, I will agree that the philosophical changes are small. But I think the fact that the number of philosophical changes are small is an evidence against posthumous editing, not for it. In other words, if you really don't need to change the philosophical meaning, why are you doing anything? If the philosophical meaning is already clear, if the philosophical meaning is already correct, then other than changing uh, typos and grammatical mistakes and incorrect citations, why change anything that Srila Prabhupada approved and wanted distributed by the millions. 
So I, as an author, I would not want my book distributed by the millions if I thought that it had 5,000 errors in it. You know, that's... Well, I guess, I guess there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot that could be said, but I do, so I don't sound like a, like a little upstart, I do want to express great appreciation for your class today. I really appreciated it. And also the maturity with, with which you approached the edits and actually speaking with you know, the editors and going to the meetings as opposed to, you know, what a lot of people do is just blaspheme and slander on the internet. So Well, that's, nice. that's kind of silly because the motives of the editors is bhakti. So why do you want to blaspheme them and, you know, their motive is service. That's, that's their motive, you know, that's their heart. And these people I know personally, they're friends of mine, you know, uh, so why, why, why do that? That's not that's not productive. And I'm not going to say that I know exactly what Prabhupada wanted. You know, I, I think that that's hubris. Um, but I'm just saying that in regard to today's purport, it's a difficult question. It's a very difficult... Yeah. It's not an easy thing to just say, footnote it, take it out. Because that opens a door to other things and... And, you know, the problem I have is the other things that are in the doors already been opened to other things. So if you're going to say we can do posthumous editing, then change this. And if you're going to say we can't change this, then go back and don't change all those other things. And, and your uh, contextual explanation of this purport really helped me understand it and be able to explain it to others. Because I also was, was frustrated with, with some of the statements and not really knowing. I had the discussion with my sister. And now when I can explain to her in the context of this Puranjana analogy in which the characters are flawed to begin with and they do have desires that aren't necessarily pure or they're materially contaminated, some of these desires manifest in such a way that, you know, this woman wants to be, you know, wants to experience certain things that, that maybe aren't the most appropriate for someone who's advanced in Exactly. Well, also, again, she represents material intelligence. You know, she, she's... We, again, we have to understand it in the sense of an allegory, that she's, she is, she's not a real person in the Bhagavatam. She's representing... These are not actual people. She's representing material intelligence. And yeah, I mean, the, the point here being made by Narada is this exploitive, uh, you know, nasty dealings <laughs> in this world that Prachini Bharat has become so enamored by. That is, that is the, main, the main point in context. And so interesting that we had like half the number of people in this class that we normally get. Anybody else have anything that they want to say on this? No, I mean, Prabhu has really been waiting for okay. quite some time here. Oh, I know, I know, I, mean, I, I, I guess so many thoughts are just swirling through my mind, but I, I very much agree with, with Radhaya Prabhu, I guess with Nice, of appreciating the the gravity with, with which uh, Mother Irma approached this. I, I, when I saw when I, just before class, I went and I just took a quick look at the Sanskrit and I read the purport and I think, oh my God, uh, thank God I wasn't given this class. And I was, I was completely Christian's arrangement. 
that Mother Irma had, and I thought she did a beautiful job with it. It's such a tough subject. I mean, I've often thought in my mind that there's some way I could use a couple of verses, a couple of things I could take out of the Bhagavatam, and nobody would ever know. <laughs> of course, that will never happen, but if I could make this one disappear, a couple of things about homosexuality, I'd love to take out, I'd love to see them take out about uh, the hookah and black people ugly and they have a tendency to steal. If there's a, just a handful of cherry picked ones I'd love to take out, but but you know, there's so many different sides of the story, and and Mother Irma definitely brought out the point of the the uh, you could say it in another way the slippery slope. And that is a real danger. If we think if we do one thing, make one change, like taking this out, then where do we stop? And that's a real problem. Exactly, and, and that is that is one of the main complaints about the posthumous editing in general. It is. And, you know, uh, to counter that, Jaidorita Swami has put together a thing of how editing should go on after his disappearance. Uh, but it, it is a big question. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think I can say confidently that the vast majority of Srila Prabhupada's disciples and followers would like that sentence taken out of the Bhagavatam. I think I can, I can say that confidently. That we, we wish it wasn't there, and we wish that Again, some editor had said to Srila Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada, this is not the right way to explain this in the world. You know, can you find another way of explaining this? That's, that's not going to just turn people off unnecessarily. And I say unnecessarily because it's not a point of Siddhanta. You know, it's, it's, it just simply isn't a point of Siddhanta. It's something meant for another purpose. And, uh, no, Mataji, I did want to say some, one quick thing. Yes. The way that I see this is that this is from a male ego's point of view. I know that before I became a devotee, I was actually ashamed to not have any relationship with women, never take out a woman, never kiss a woman, blah, blah, blah. It was a shame because all the other boys were talking about their conquests of women. So the male ego is such that if he thinks that he's a great hero and then despite women being exploited, but because they think that they're such a man, that uh, it really puffs you up. And uh, like I said, I, I felt like, you know, I, I was less, uh, I was uh, demasculated because I did not have that ability. So I see this more from the point of the male ego, that that's the intelligence in the form of a woman. Uh, he's thinking that she wants to be exploited. She wants to be dominated upon. So that's how I see what the main point here is. Well, that, that's also very interesting. And, you know, she's playing into that, actually. You know, we, we could go that way, too, that the verse itself, the, the material intelligence is playing into this male ego in order to control him. You know, the, that the bewildered spirit soul gets, gets controlled by a contaminated intelligence by being buttered up with, oh, you're such a hero. You know, so that is another way to look at it. I mean, the reason I went the direction I did is that Srila Prabhupada was speaking in the, was writing in the purport from the woman's side. Yes. All right, we should end now. Thank you very much. And hopefully I don't keep getting verses like this to speak on. 
All glories to Shu Robud.